try to imagine that, this is going to be hard, that you are perfect and enjoy a perfect holy existence. Yeah. You probably can't because we have no context to try to imagine that, but try. And now I want you to think that you've created people for your good pleasure, and those people have brought bad into your perfect. Sin is the word we use in the Bible, but bad you could use as well into this perfect world that you have created. Death, perversion, lying, cheating, gossip, slander, murder, jealousy, vanity, keep going. All come flooding into this perfect world through the action of these people that you have created. Breaking your regulations and rules, you have given them for a right and good existence. I give you that example because tonight we're going to talk about a really hard, sobering topic um, even if you read the title of the section, we're going to be in 18 through 32 tonight. And we're going to talk about the not-so-fun and comforting not-so-much topic of wrath. This is probably one of those sections of the Bible that people will skip over. They don't want to talk about. It's uncomfortable. And what I'm hoping is tonight, yes, we are sobered by the fact that we believe in a God of wrath. But I hope as we read this, you see it as a backdrop to the goodness of the gospel. So before we get into this, I want to define, I've been doing this for the last couple weeks, I just think it's helpful because Romans uses words over and over again that I want to make sure we actually understand when we read them or I say them, we know what they mean. So one of the words we've been talking about is righteousness. Does anyone know what we defined righteousness as? Yes. Yeah, good, right standing, having no debt or liabilities owed without fault, blameless, righteous. It really could be defined of God. God is righteous. So therefore, what would the reverse be? What would unrighteousness be? Okay, yeah. Yeah? Okay, sin. If you just literally took that definition and flipped it, what would it be? Okay, you what? Okay, so being wrong or in bad standing, owing a debt, being liable because you have broken the law, you are with fault and you are guilty. That's the unrighteous. The righteous and the unrighteous. And then the last word that we're going to talk about tonight is the word wrath. Does anyone know what the word wrath means? Anger. Okay, anger, yeah. Okay, yeah, so really angry. Okay, yeah. 
And tonight when we talk about wrath, it's different from the anger that you and I feel most often, which is sinful anger. This wrath that God is giving is a personal, holy anger against sin. It is an anger against sin. It's an anger against that world that I've created. The sin that has come into it, he hates it. It is opposite of him because he is righteous and it is unrighteous. So the wrath of God is for the effects of sin and the sinful man have unleashed on the world that God has created. It is wrath for breaking his law and his covenant. It is wrath for living unrighteous. Or said differently, it is wrath for living wrongly, badly, or against the law. And here's the hard news tonight. Every single one of us in this room is unrighteous. Every single one of us in this room lives wrong, lives bad, and breaks the law. We are unrighteous in God's eyes. So let me address something before we read our passage. Some may say that God is not a God of wrath. You may have heard this because that makes him unloving. How can he be a God of wrath and be loving? Because that makes him unloving, we believe in a God of love. Okay, so this doesn't make sense at all. How do we know that someone has love for another? Does it show itself in the response of that person when the other is hurting, in need, being harmed, or defeated? Um, there's a pastor named Matt Chandler that states this well. You can't tease out wrath and love. Where one is, the other is there also. What is love if you don't have wrath? I'm going to give an example of this that I, I feel like really, um, when I first heard this, hit me. So, I have a wife and a two-month-old baby at home. If someone came into my house and decided to attack them, if I stood by and let it happen, do you think I would love my children or my wife? My children and my wife? No. No, I would do everything in my power to stop them. I would respond. Because how dumpy of a dad would I be if I just allowed someone to harm them? Would you think I would love them if I didn't respond in wrath? Do I want violence? No. Do I want to hurt someone? No. But my response is, I love them so deeply that I will come after you if you try to harm them. Wrath is really personal. God hates what sin has done in this world. He hates what sin has done in you. So much so that he's pouring out his wrath You better bet that if someone comes after my family, I will do everything necessary to protect them. In the passage today, God's wrath is revealed against unrighteousness. The unrighteousness of this world hurts, harms, and keeps us from God in perfect peace and relationship. 
The love of God is shown in his wrath towards the unrighteous in this world and in us. I like this quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, love is not affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be attained. I want to say that again because the word love gets thrown around a lot. And I think this is a really clear definition for us today. Love is not affectionate feeling, but a steady wish and desire for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be attained. How loving would God actually be to allow us to continue in sin, to continue in unrighteousness, and allow sin to run rampant without justice? God is loving because he's just. And in his justice, he pours out wrath. We experience his love and the justice of his character. Unrighteousness deserves wrath. If God never gives justice for the acts of unrighteousness, then one, he clearly approves of those acts. And two, he doesn't care about the people's ultimate good. I want you to think about this for a second. If you just want to say, oh, well, God's only loving, he doesn't have wrath. So you're telling me God feels nothing to the person that just got murdered. He doesn't want to bring justice. He doesn't care about that. No, he does. In fact, he deeply cares about it. So now that we've talked about that, um, I want to show you from our passage today. And as I've already stated, this is the heart and gut-wrenching section of Scripture. But we must understand the wrath of God against unrighteousness to truly understand the good news of the gospel. I I can't emphasize enough that you have to understand this passage and the next couple to really understand the gospel. Because if you don't, the righteousness that you receive from Jesus means nothing. You have to realize your depth of sin in your unrighteousness first to really value what the good news of the gospel is is that Jesus has given you righteousness for your unrighteousness perfection for your sin so let's read um, chapter 1 starting in verse 18 through 32 for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and they became... In their hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, 
Or their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in them the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decrees, righteous decrees, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice So the main idea that I want us to get tonight is that the unrighteous will inherit the wrath of God. What is unrighteousness again? We said unrighteousness is the bad or wrong standing, owing a debt, being liable because you've broken the law, being with fault or guilty. We have a problem. That problem is sin. That problem is that you and I are unrighteous in ourselves. The judgment for sin is wrath, and we'll read that later in, verse, or in chapter 3. God will judge sin by his wrath. Our problem is that without an outside righteousness, our only possibility is to be children of wrath because of our sin. The only possible outcome for you and for me without the righteousness of Jesus is to be children of wrath. That's what Romans 1 is saying. The wrath of God has been revealed to the unrighteous. He says three different times in this section, for this reason, God gave them up. You see, in this section, what he's showing is that when you embrace sin, God will give you up to that. And give the culture and society up to that as they embrace that sin and unrighteousness. So the three different times he says this, um, the ESU study, study Bible says three times Paul says God gave them up. In every instance, the giving up to sin is a result of idolatry. The refusal to make God the sinner and circumference of all existence, so that in practice the creature is exalted over the creator. Hence, all individual sins are a consequence of the failure to prize and praise God as the giver of every good thing. God gives them up. Why? Because they chose the creature over the creator, the created over the creator. Idolatry. God gives them up to impurity, dishonoring the body, dishonorable passions, a corrupted mind. And a joyful applause to those that do all those things. So let's talk a little bit about worshiping the creature over the creator. What is worship? Anyone know? What, what would you say worship is? Praise. Okay, praise. Yeah, there it is. What's worship? Okay, glorify. Other thoughts? Yeah. A celebration. A celebration, okay.
Honor, yep, absolutely. Praise, honor, celebrating, yep. Yes, in the right worship, yes. <laughs> Any other thoughts? Worship is your purpose. Is your purpose? You're saying that's worship. Yeah. Rejoicing. You what? Rejoicing. Rejoicing. Okay. So <clears throat> what I, I will say is that every single person in here is designed to worship. You have no other design than to worship. Why? Because you and I were created for God. We were created to worship God. Here's the problem. When we no longer choose God to worship, what happens? We go somewhere else. Because why? We are wired to worship. You will find something else in your life to worship if God is not the thing that you are going to worship, that you're going to honor, that you're going to praise, that you're going to celebrate, that you're going to rejoice over. It is the thing that becomes your idol. What you worship, I'll give you some things to think about. Maybe things like, what do you do with your free time? What do you think about when your head hits the pillow? What consumes your thoughts while you're sitting in class? Where does your money go? And I can continue to go on and on. What do you worship? Say God or something else? Because you are worshiping something right now. We must worship something. We were made for it. Tim Keller says, we are purpose people. We have to have something to live for. There must be something which captures our imagination and our allegiance, which is the rest place of our deepest hopes in which we look to calm our deepest fears. Whatever that thing is we worship, we serve it. It becomes our bottom line the thing we cannot live without, defining and validating everything that we do. The unrighteousness that comes, that's talked about in this passage, is an unrighteousness because what happened is in the garden and from the garden until now and into the future, man has decided it is no longer God who I worship. I worship myself or the created. And because of that, we have broken his law. Sin has come into the world, and the passage we're looking at tonight is showing the effects of choosing that. That giving up, the giving over that God does. So what do we believe will give us this purpose? Why do we give worship away? I think it could be things like control. We worship something because we think it's going to give us control. And if we get control, I'll be happy. Maybe you worship something because you think it's going to give you freedom. Maybe you worship something because you want to be significant. So you worship those that are significant, hoping to get there one day. Maybe you worship happiness. 
So the choices you make in your life are just to make you happy. Maybe it's acceptance, approval, pleasure, satisfaction, joy. These things we serve will become our masters and control us. But the belief is they will allow us more freedom. But the truth is they don't. They enslave us. All the things above only lead to further enslavement. Because here's the other deal. If you are created to worship, that means you're looking at something else to give your praise and glory and honor to. Which also means that you have a master. And that master will either be God or it will be something else. And what I want to tell you and me tonight is the best master is God. The other things in your life that you believe, if I serve you, you will give me this, is a lie. It's not true. I might give you a little bit of taste. But as you chase after those things, that's what this passage is about. The breaking down starts to happen. Because we pursue unrighteousness over and over. And we start to have this giving up of it. The things we serve will become our masters and control us. The worst thing that could happen to us is that God would give us up to chase the created and not the creator. This is a terrifying passage for this reason. The statement that God gave them up, that's terrifying. Because God finally is, what it's saying is passion goes, fine. If you want to chase the created, go for it. There's only death and wrath down that road. But I'm going to give it up to you. When God allows us to over-desire the good things and make them ultimate things, dangerous slope. Let's look at three things that he talks about in here really quickly. So in verses 24 um, through 27, we see impurity, dishonoring of the body, and dishonorable passions. You might be thinking, why is he starting with sexual perversion? Why is he starting here? I think He's trying to show the depth of unnatural and going against God's design. I don't think the interpretation is right to, to see here that this is the worst sin. That's not the case here. What he's trying to show is the unnatural that's happening in the breakdown of what sin is doing. So we see impurity, dishonoring of the body, dishonorable passions. But I'll say this, that I do not think that he's saying that these sins are any worse than the others, that he's about to list off a lot of others. It's just one of the ways in which he gives us over to those passions, to that unrighteousness that leads to these things. So the second point you see in verses um, 28 through 31, I'm actually going to read this one. It says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind or a corrupted mind, if debased is not in your vocabulary. 
corrupted, rejected mind. He gave them up to a rejected, corrupted mind to do what ought not to be done. Again, terrifying. That God would step back and go, fine, if you want that, you run after it. Literally untrusted and incapable as a guide to moral decision making. That's what you could think about here. This person is literally incapable and untrusted as a moral decision maker. And it tells us here, as we go through this list, I'm going to read them off. This is a list of things that come most naturally to those of the corrupted mind. Those living in unrighteousness or sin. He says this, they are filled with what? All manners of evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This is the giving up. This is where God steps back and says, I have shown you my divine attributes. I have shown you my law. I've shown you who I am. And you have chosen to not follow and acknowledge me. And therefore, I will step back. And I'm going to give you up to these things. As you read this list, do you not see this everywhere? Do you not see this in us when we chase our own sin? And then last, he talks about in verse 32, the final thing. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So the last and final result of this giving up is not only people doing these things, but other people looking on and going, keep going. Love it. And the example Paul would have been thinking about is the Colosseum. As thousands of people poured into the Colosseum and clapped as people were literally mauled to death. He's looking on this girl and how did we get here? Because sin. Because of righteousness. And it has started to spread and the effects are seen. So again, the main idea that we're talking about is that unrighteousness, the unrighteous will inherit the wrath of God. So I want to go back real quick to our section last week in verse 17 of Romans 1. Verse 17 of Romans 1, the very end says this, the righteous shall live by faith. Why must the righteous live by faith? Because left to our own devices, abilities, and knowledge, we only can know and attain unrighteousness. We can only know and attain sin. Left to our own devices. We need righteousness from another on our behalf 
It has to come from outside of us. You either have the righteousness of God or you have the wrath of God. The righteous will live by faith. Faith because why? Faith in the one who is righteous. That's what you need. That's what I need. That's what we need. That is the only way we get righteousness. I hope you see the seriousness of sin and the terrifying thought that God would give us up to chase our desires that would destroy us and others around us. But I hope that draws your eyes ever more thankfully to the grace of God tonight. That he would take our sin, our unrighteousness, and give us his own son's righteousness. Having done nothing to deserve it. He would take our wrongs, give us his rights. He would take our sin and give us perfection. What a gift we have in Jesus. As we continue in Romans, we'll talk more about this gift. But for now, it's important to understand the backdrop. You have to understand unrighteousness before you understand the beauty of the righteousness that's been given to you. That wrath that you and I deserve for our unrighteousness has been poured out on Christ. And we have been given righteousness. That's the gospel.